Uh, we have two readings today. We're starting in Haggai, uh, which is at the very end of the Old Testament, um, the last three verses of Haggai. So Haggai 2, verses 20 to 23. And then when we've read that, we're going to just go forward uh, through the last couple of books of the Old Testament into the New Testament and read from Matthew, uh, the second half of verse 6 to the end of verse 17. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord Almighty. So we move now to Matthew on page 965, and that promise that the Lord Almighty has just given, we will see how it comes out in the genealogy that's shown the generations of fathers before Jesus. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elikayam, Elikayam, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Elizar, Elizar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Thanks very much, Caroline. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to uh, the final part of our journey through the book of Haggai. You may have noted um, that from that reading of of Haggai's fourth and final sermon, which is before us this morning, it's somewhat shorter uh, than the previous three, which we've looked at over the past three weeks. But just to set your expectations, that doesn't mean we're going to be done in the next five minutes, because there's still...
plenty in these few verses to think about and with God's help uh, to apply to our lives. So let's pray once more as we come to God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you that even in just a few sentences that are before us this morning, there is a wealth of knowledge and light and understanding of the gospel and of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray now, Lord, as we come to your word, that you would grant us that understanding and that you would encourage us as your people this morning to keep building your kingdom for your glory. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, before we come to Haggai's uh, fourth sermon, I want to summarize very quickly the journey we've come on over the last uh, few weeks. And you may remember back in chapter one, Haggai's first sermon, it was a call to realign our priorities. Haggai, remember, is speaking to the remnants of God's people who've returned from captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and their temple and their lives, but they had stalled in the rebuilding of the temple. They'd neglected God's glory and they'd prioritized other things instead. And so the Lord says to them, look back in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, give careful thought to your ways. Check your hearts. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Now is the time, says Haggai, to build the Lord's house. Now is the time to realign your priorities and commit to kingdom building work. And they did look, chapter 1, verse 14. Provoked by the word of God and stirred up by the spirit of God, God's people went back to work, sorry, on the house of the Lord. They recommitted themselves to what really mattered. Yet within just a few months, God's people are once again discouraged and faltering in their work. So the Lord speaks once more through his prophet Haggai to his people. Chapter 2, verse 4. Have a look down. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. It is a call to keep building, to continue work on the house of the Lord. But it is a call combined with that wonderful promise of God's presence with his people as they build. And so as we think about that call this morning to keep going, to keep building, however tough life might be right now, serving King Jesus for his glory, keep going. Not because you're strong, but because the Lord God is strong and he promises to be with his people as they build. And then last week was a bit of a reality check, wasn't it? Combined with another promise of wonderful grace. You may remember our friend King Midas Everything he touched turned to gold. Well, it was a similar story for God's people in Haggai's day, but with a significant difference. Everything they touched turned to mold, not gold. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 14. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. We are all broken builders, yet despite our sin, 
Despite the waywardness of our hearts, the Lord will bless us still. And through our ministry and through our service and through our lives in this world, he will touch others. He will bless others through us. And then we finished, didn't we, in that wonderful promise at the end of verse 19. From this day on, I will bless you. It's a blessing that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, who alone can make unclean people clean. You see, it is Jesus Christ who saves people. And it is Jesus Christ who builds his church. We just have the wonderful privilege of joining Jesus in the work that he is already doing. And now with those words still ringing in their ears, look, Haggai speaks again, chapter 2, verse 20. Have a look down. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. It's the same day. And the Lord speaks to Haggai a second time. And so Haggai's back in the pulpit for the evening service. He's preached in the morning. That was last week, his third sermon. And now he's back in the evening but this time with a much reduced congregation. Have a look at verse 21 and see the audience that Haggai is now speaking to. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. It is a sermon that is delivered to just one person. Haggai is in the pulpit and Zerubbabel is in the pew. So as we listen to this message today, can I say that this isn't firstly a message to us. It is a message to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, at this particular point in Israel's history in 520 BC. But that said, as we listen in this morning, as we eavesdrop into what Haggai said to Zerubbabel all those years ago, there are things in here that we need to hear that will encourage us today in our own ministry and our own lives. And so there's three headings that I've got for us this morning that will hopefully capture all that's happening here in Haggai's fourth sermon. And the first one is this, Zerubbabel, governor or king? question mark. You see, throughout the book of Haggai, you may have noticed that Zerubbabel is referred to as both the governor of Judah and the son of Shealtiel. Have a look back at chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And then in today's passage, verse 21, tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. And then verse 23, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Now, it's not insignificant that we're given this important piece of background information regarding Zerubbabel. Five times, in fact, in this short book, Zerubbabel is referred to as the son of Shealtiel. Now, with that in mind, if you would come back to our second reading of this morning and that genealogy in the book of Matthew. This is Jesus' family tree. And it's a family tree that traces the promises first made to Abraham all the way down the the line of people through King David, through the, the Davidic kings, and it finds its way. It lands with the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 17. All those promises come into their fruition in Christ. 
But there we read in verse 12, in the middle of this family tree, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim as he's also known, was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And then as you count down the generations, you would find that Zerubbabel is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. You see, he was born into the Davidic line. He was a rightful heir to the throne in Jerusalem. But of course, when the kingdom collapsed in 586 BC, when the Babylonians invaded and smashed Jerusalem to the ground, it looked like those promises and that kingdom had come to an end. And so instead of wearing a crown and and sitting on a throne in in a prospering city of Jerusalem, Zerubbabel was instead the humble governor of a small Jewish remnant, struggling to rebuild the house of the Lord and surrounded by almost constant opposition. This was a tough place to be a leader. Tougher than Long Crendon, probably, James. It was a tough place to be a leader. And so the Lord gives a special word of encouragement to Zerubbabel. And we have the privilege all these years later, 2017 AD, of listening in to what happened on the 18th of December, 520 BC, and learning from this encouragement that Haggai gave to the leader, Zerubbabel. And there's two things that the Lord has to say to Zerubbabel by way of encouragement. And the first one is there in verse 21. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. It's a phrase we've come across already back in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. And it's a phrase that speaks of God establishing his rule and his unshakable kingdom. And that's exactly what we see in the verse that follows. Look, verse 22. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers' horses, and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. It's vivid language, isn't it? God will overturn. God will shatter. God will overthrow. Their riders will fall. You see, much of the language that you see there is drawn from significant moments of victory, if you like, in the Old Testament. There's language from the Exodus. There's language from the conquest of the promised land. But it all speaks ultimately about the same thing. A powerful, all-conquering God who will defeat his enemies and establish his eternal kingdom. And that must have come as huge encouragement, mustn't it? As a rubble as governor of this small, struggling, seemingly insignificant people, facing opposition at every turn and subject to the ruling oppressive powers of Persia. Yet God promises Zerubbabel that his kingdom will prevail. You cannot stop the kingdom of God. His kingdom will prevail. The gospel will prevail while all opposing powers and rulers and political ideologies, including Persia, will fall. But the kingdom of God alone will stand. And of course, as we listen in today, isn't that encouragement for us too? 
You see, don't we sometimes as the church feel a little bit like the remnant of God's people in Haggai's day? Small, struggling, seemingly insignificant, subject to the ruling powers, not of Persia, but of the secular powers of the 21st century, as the gospel is slowly squeezed out of school curriculums and assemblies. As Christianity is ridiculed in the media... And as the Christian voice is increasingly marginalized in the powers of the corridors of Westminster. You see, as Christians in the Western world were increasingly being squeezed to the margins of life, not by a Persian superpower, like in Zerubbabel's day, but by the secular powers of the 21st century. Yet, verse 22, the promise still stands. God's kingdom will prevail. The gospel will prevail. While all those ruling powers and authorities and ideologies of our day will fall, while God's kingdom alone will stand. Imagine for a moment just being or just overhearing a conversation of someone in the street, and the conversation tells you that Long Crendon is going to be leveled to the floor, bombed, flattened, yet just one house in Long Crendon will stand. If you knew that to be true, what would you do? What do you do? You go to the house. You would flee to that house and you would take refuge there. You see, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from his exalted position in glory to shake the heavens and the earth once more, to overturn the political ideologies of our day, to to remold the cosmos, the new creation, when he returns to shake the heavens and the earth, then only those who stand in Christ will remain when he overturns when he shatters when he overthrows only those who take refuge in the wonderful loving rescuing arms of the Lord Jesus will stand everyone else will fall and so for those of you who are here this morning who are maybe yet to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ could I urge you to take seriously the promise of verse 22 the day of God's shaking. And could I urge you to run to the Lord Jesus and take refuge in the only one who can provide it for us. And if you have already trusted in Jesus this morning, if you're sat there with the joy of the Lord in your heart, knowing that you are part of an unshakable kingdom that will last forever, then would you now listen into these words from 2 Peter chapter 3, which call us to respond, to live in light of this great and glorious shaking that will come. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Answer, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven 
and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So what sort of life should we live? In light of this great shaking that is to come, this total reordering of the cosmos, we ought to live holy and godly lives, set apart for the gospel, distinct for the gospel, centered upon Christ and transformed by Christ in order that he might continue to use his church to build his kingdom for his glory. You see, it really matters It really matters as Christians how we live in light of this day that is to come. So firstly, the Lord through Haggai says to Zerubbabel, the kingdom will prevail. I will shake the heavens and the earth. And then secondly, I will make you like my signet ring. Firstly, I will shake. And secondly, I will make. Verse 23. On that day declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now there's two things that you need to know about a signet ring that you see up there on the screen. Firstly, a signet ring was very precious, very precious to its owner. It meant a lot. It was of great value. It was of great worth. It was precious. But secondly, it was used to confirm or guarantee a promise. Okay? So the king who owned the signet ring, if he was um, about to write out a new pledge or a new law that he wanted to introduce in his land, he would write out this law or this pledge on a, on a piece of parchment, would roll it up into a scroll, drop a bit of wax on it to seal it, and with his signet ring, put his imprint in it, a royal stamp of approval, signifying that this was an official pledge or promise that comes with the guarantee of the king. Okay, so now keep those words precious and promise in your mind because they're key to understanding uh, this, this metaphor of the signet ring. And come with me to these words on the screen in Jeremiah chapter 22. These are words spoken to God's people before they went into exile at the hand of the Babylonians. And Jehoiakim there, remember, is Zerubbabel's grandfather. We've learned that already in our family tree. Now listen with me. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you. Those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Babylonians, I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. You see, God says to Jehoiakim, who remember is Zerubbabel's grandfather, even though you're precious to me, precious, like a signet ring, a king born into the line of David. I will take you off, says the Lord, and I will hurl you away into a land that you do not want to be, into captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. And from there, Jehoiakim, you will never return. 
And that's exactly what happened at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 BC. Jehoiakim and the remainder of God's people hurled into exile, precious to God, yet because of their disobedience, hurled into exile. Yet, 66 years later, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 23, at the end of this fourth sermon, we learn that the Lord is about to put the signet ring back on. The time of judgment and exile has come to an end and the Lord is going to bless his people once more. He is renewing and confirming and guaranteeing the promise that he made to King David all those years ago. King David, one will sit on your throne, one will come from your family and they will build an eternal kingdom that will never fall, a world that is full of unhampered blessings. And you, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, are my man. I will make you like a signet ring. What an encouragement that must have been, mustn't it, to a troubled leader battling away with this remnant to rebuild the Lord's house, to see his glory take hold of this world once more. What an encouragement that must have been for Zerubbabel. But you see, as we read on in the Bible, we see that even though God did begin to restore his kingdom through Zerubbabel and his leadership, he never became king. He lived and died under Persian rule as a humble governor. You see, these promises were always pointing forward. The genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. You see, there is only one true signet ring king who is infinitely precious, infinitely precious, of infinite worth, Because he and he alone has confirmed and secured and sealed and guaranteed every single one of God's good and perfect promises that he has made through the entire history of this world. Through his sin-bearing death on the cross and his glorious resurrection to new life. Who is he? Well, he's Zerubbabel's great, great, great great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Jesus is the signet ring king. You see, verse 23 is a promise to Zerubbabel, but it's a promise that is fulfilled wonderfully in Christ, which is why the Apostle Paul can say, look, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, They are yes in Christ. Every single promise. Imagine going through God's word and scribbling down every promise you could find. Oh, it'd take a while. There's one on every page. Scribbling them all down. You see, the Bible is saturated with these beautiful promises of life and hope, and joy, and assurance, and transformation, and salvation, and glorification, and every single one of them, every single minute and big promise is fulfilled perfectly in the person and work of Jesus. For no matter how many promises 
God has made. They are yes in Christ. Jesus is our signet ring king, infinitely precious in confirming and guaranteeing all the promises of God. What a precious savior Jesus is, isn't he? He's the fount of all blessing. He's the source of every single good thing that comes your way in life. And in that moment on Calvary, when the Lord Jesus Christ willingly gave up his life and declared with almost his final words, it is finished, it is done. In that moment, all those promises were opened up to God's people like the fountain that burst almost contained these promises waiting to get out and Jesus dies it's done and burst infinite blessings for all eternity will pour down will rain down on God's people if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ you are secure forever in God's eternal and lasting kingdom the home of righteousness as it's referred to in 2 Peter chapter 3 and his blessings will know no end as they rain down on his people Jesus is the signet ring king. I wonder, I wonder how precious Jesus is to you this morning. And so as we draw this series to a close, as we come full circle, I want to bring you back to the question that we began with right back in chapter one. It's the question that we were forced to ask ourselves, what are you building? Remember my plaque as I come down the stairs? I see it every morning. What am I building, Wellesley, today? This day, what am I building? What am I spending my money on today? What am I spending my time on today? How am I using my gifts today? How am I investing who I am and all that the Lord has given me? How am I investing that in such a way that will really count in eternity when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to shake the heavens and the earth. And so that's the question I'm going to leave you with on the screen for a couple of moments. What are you building in life? God's unshakable kingdom that will last for eternity or your own shaky dreams that will be here one minute? and gone the next. Why don't you take a moment to ask that question of yourself?